Today's episode of the podcast continues my coverage of the Flavours of New Zealand 2019 annual trade tasting in London. This features the Marlborough Masterclass delivered on the day by Ronan Saburn and Kevin Judd. Ronan is the head of wine for 67 Palmal, a master sommelier and a previous winner of the UK Sommelier of the Year competition. Kevin was the first winemaker at world-famous Cloudy Bay located in Marlborough and since 2009 has been making wine under the Grey Wacky label. As with all of these masterclasses, I would strongly recommend accessing the slides from the link in the description, getting this on the screen in front of you so you can follow along. I've given a list of the slides in the description and these go from a relatively high level overview of Marlborough and its three sub-regions right down to the individual wines that we tasted on the day. I've included details of price and importer in the UK in the description. As before, I've edited the audio fairly lightly, leaving in the tasting pauses just in case you're lucky enough to have all six wines in front of you and are tasting along. I've also left in a fair amount of discussion between Ronan and Kevin during the talk, which I think is interesting and adds background and context to the discussion. There are also a few questions that weren't really picked up by the mic. One question about the underperformance of Sommelion just before the first wine and a late question about Pinot Gris and alternative grape varieties in Marlborough. Enjoy. So New Zealand's quite a complex region to navigate. Uh, they have, up in the north, they have this island called the Northern Island, the North Island, and then down in the south, they have another island that they call the South Island. It's not that complicated, really. Um, different climatically, probably a bit warmer, a bit more tropical up in the north, probably a bit cooler in the south. One of the main influences you get in the south is this big kind of spine of the southern Alps that runs all the way down the southern island. Definitely acts as a big rain shadow. A lot of that Pacific wind and Pacific rain that comes over from Australia. The, the, the New Zealanders maybe say you get a lot of rubbish from the west. I'm sure that they mean the weather, not the Australians. Well, some of us call that big island over there the West Island. Okay, But generally, a lot of that bad Pacific weather tends to come... It hits this uh, uh, rain shadow of mountains, the Southern Alps. Um, if you've seen Lord of the Rings, you've seen those mountains in it all the time. It all kind of falls as rainfall. Over on this side of the, uh, the country, I think it's about 1,400 millimetres, because a lot of that rainfall lands there, falls because of the mountains. And then if you're down in places like Queenstown... Uh, and over in this sort of side of the country, it can be right down to about 400 to 600 millimetres. So those mountains really act like a big rain shadow. And if you're getting a big rain shadow like that, it means you're not getting a lot of clouds. So you're getting a lot of sun exposure to the grapes. So you're getting a lot of UV rays on the grapes. You know, they may say that there's a little hole in the ozone layer down in this sort of area. So there's an awful lot of UV rays coming onto the grapes and onto the country in this area. So because of the Southern Alps, you're getting relatively low rainfall on this side and low cloud cover, so then you're getting high UV rays. So we're going to talk more about the Marlborough region, so right up in the northern part up here. If you were kind of to look at the main regions in um, New Zealand, you'd have Marlborough, which is by far the biggest wine-producing area, probably has a climate generalising a bit, but probably similar to things like Otago and Burgundy. 
If you were looking at Hawke's Bay up here, the second biggest region, you'd probably be looking a bit more like a Bordeaux kind of climate. Um, and if you're right down in sort of central Otago down here, it's very, very dry because of that, that ring of mountains around the outside. But the climate is probably a bit closer to Germany, so probably a bit more closer to things like the Mosul Valley. Um, but as a country, it produces 37,000 hectares. It's, it plants, it's planted 37,000 hectares of vines. Um, so relatively small. Does anyone know what the size of Burgundy is? A little bit more, I think, if you include Beaujolais, so probably about 29,000, 28, 29,000. So it's not much bigger than Burgundy, to be honest. Um, but you can see, really, the lion's share of that is all planted in Marlborough. So about 77% of all of the grapes are planted in Marlborough. And that's really come on from about 1974. So it's been a big region which has expanded rapidly over the last 40 years. After that, it's Hawke's Bay, it's second biggest, which is only just under 5,000. So not a, big, not a big vineyard planting. And I think, that, um, I think that New Zealand probably produces about less than 1% of all the wine in the world. But anyone that's here is who's a sommelier, I think that they will all have a selection of New Zealand wines on their wine list. I think that we all kind of look at New Zealand wines and we all kind of think that they generally, uh, Im the images of New Zealand wine are generally high quality generally sort of cooler climate, fresh, clean, very reliable styles of wine. So I think in sort of 40 years, New Zealand's kind of come onto the world winemaking scene with a big bang, and I think we all kind of trust the wines. And I think, it, you know, even if it's only a Sauvignon Blanc, I think most winelists in the world have something from New Zealand there. Okay, so yeah, they're producing 25,000 hectares of vines, and then 77% of all the proportion of New Zealand wines comes from Marlborough. So there's three sort of distinct areas to the Marlborough region. Uh, you've got out here, you've got the Cloudy Bay region, which kind of leads across the Cook Strait and leads over to Wellington in the North Island. And the three main regions would really be the Wairau Valley up here, the Southern Valleys down here, and the Tree Valley down here. So you've got the range of mountains here called the Richmond Ranges. You go over the Richmond Ranges and you come into the Nelson area. Uh, the Wairau Valley really is formed by this whole Wairau River that runs all the way from those southern Alps. When any of that rainfall lands on those southern Alps, eventually it trickles out the mountains. It has to find its way out somewhere. So in the northern part of the, the region, it will find its way out. A lot of it will find its way out into the Wairau Valley. So this river is kind of snaked back and forth across this whole river valley basin for kind of uh, uh, millions of years. Left a lot of small alluvial river pebbles. Um, sort of all across that valley. So we're definitely talking alluvial valley here, small pebbles generally made of uh, small grey stones called grey wacky. Um, mixed in there, you'll have some sand and some silt, so generally alluvial kind of deposits all the way across there. You go through the main town of Blenheim down here and through Renwick. Then you're in sort of the main, the, one of the choice, one of the best winemaking areas in the middle of there called Rapaura. And then you're kind of into these southern valleys just along here. So on this side of the valley, it tends to be slightly uh, damper, slightly cooler, slightly more green. And then by the time you're getting over to these southern valleys, it tends to be slightly more dry and slightly more arid. And you have a selection of different valleys running from down here. You have the Ben Morven, you have the Waihopai, uh, Omaka, uh, Fairhall, Fairhall? Brancott, Brancott Valley and Fairhall. We call it the Brancott Valley, but technically it used to be called the Fairhall Valley. Ah, okay, okay. All right. A selection of different valleys that run down here that really have a mixture of different so soils. A lot of the soils down there generally are a kind of a windblown loess, so a lot more sort of clay, lighter materials, less of that alluvial kind of pebbly material. 
Then over these wither hills around here, which the wither hills, if you ever see them, they are kind of quite, uh, quite sort of uh, arid. Not much rainfall on there at all. And then when you're coming over to this Awatray Valley over here, uh, slightly cooler. There's a lot of this uh, southern Arctic wind that blows up through this area. It kind of chills down the Awatree Valley. And a lot of that sort of cooler wind is protected from uh, this area by those, by those mountains just in here, by those hills just in here. So they're the kind of the three areas um, of Marlborough. So a bit of history about Marlborough. It was actually first planted in 1973 by a guy called David Hurd, who, pl- who had a winery called Antsfield um, over in Almarca. It was there, I think he was planting Muscat, was that right? Muscat, yeah, he was planting out a Muscat vineyard there. Uh, his son inherited it, but eventually it got overrun in 1931 and all the vines were removed. So it kind of disappeared for a long time. And then it's revitalized and now you can go up to Arntsfield. They, they are producing wine up there again, including some Muscat. And there is a statue of this guy if you come into Blenheim Airport. If you come out of Blenheim Airport, there's a statue of David Hurd there. Then kind of move forward about 100 years to 1973, um, Frank Jukic of Montana Wines, uh, he planted the first vines uh, for, a gen- for, a, for a century over in the, um, the Brancott Valley. He was uh, one of the co-founders of Montana Wines, and this is a picture of him with one of the, the other founder of Montana Wines, placing a silver coin to, to commemorate this. Uh, this planting of vines. He actually went to that area. He actually had a lot of faith in the area and he bought um, about 1,100 hectares of vines, pretty much without the approval of the Montana board. Apparently he paid for it all the deposit for himself. I think he paid it out of his own money. Um, so he had a lot of faith in this area. Uh, Apparently he paid about $500 an acre. Oh yeah, okay, yeah. Um, yes, yeah, about $500 an acre. What would have been a, a, a hectare yeah, it was $1,100 a hectare, and now it's about $25,000 a hectare? About oh, and right? the rest. Um, a, a, a vineyard, a planted vineyard next, next door to where we are um, changed hands fairly recently for something like $300,000 a hectare. Okay. Pinot, hillside Pinot Noir. Okay. So he bought 1,000 hectares for $1,000 a, a hectare, and now it's worth uh, considerably more. So it's a good investment. Um, but actually, when they bought that initial 1,000 hectares, they did call it Cloudy Bay Developments. Have you heard about that as well? Yeah. So it was called Cloudy Bay Developments, and I think the mayor of Blenheim said that's a ridiculous name for a winery. You can't call it that. But anyway, so Montana wines really were the first people to be planting in 73. It wasn't all Sauvignon Blanc, though. I think there was only a very small amount of Sauvignon Blanc, apparently. But Sauvignon Blanc started to become... Uh, they started to find that Sauvignon Blanc was really kind of f- suited to that environment. Probably when Sauvignon Blanc started to become well-known in this country was probably in in the mid-80s with uh, Ernie Hunter, who was a big character. He um, put his wine into the London Times uh, wine show. I think he brought it over here and he was showing his wine. He was uh, showing his wine off with um, oysters. So if you came to the wine show at the time, you could have oysters and a glass of his Sauvignon Blanc. And it won the best non-Chardonnay medal three years in a row, which was pretty kind of uncommon for anything that was non-French at the time to win such a prestigious award three years in a row. Um, then move forward a little bit, or kind of into the mid-'80s again, you had David Honan from... from uh, um, Kate Mentel over in Margaret River, who started Cloudy Bay Vineyards and put this, this young man in as, as the first winemaker. 
So Kevin here became the first winemaker at Cloudy Bay. I think you were working at Corbin's at the time, and were they bringing grapes up? No? No, I never worked for Corbin's. Okay. Um, but the, f the very first Cloudy Bay was picked in Marlborough and, tru and trucked up to Corbin's in Gisborne, and we made it in Gisborne. Oh, okay. And then we trucked the wine to Auckland and bottled it, and then sent basically the whole lot to okay. be sold in Australia. Okay. Right, okay. But I think really, you know, with the with sort of Cloudy Bay and with Hunter's Wines, you know, that really kind of put the Cloudy, Sauvignon Blanc from Marlborough really on the world map. Um, some of the reasons that you get those, uh, those particular flavours in Marlborough, if you're kind of looking, you're definitely talking about maritime climates if you're over on an island like New Zealand and if you're up in Marlborough. And if you look at this compared to sort of Dijon, comparing it to Marlborough, you can kind of see from July to July and through the summertime, you're going to be, uh, whether you're, whether you're um, in January or whether you're in July, whether Northern Hemisphere or Southern Hemisphere, if you're in Dijon, it's going to be a lot cooler in the winter. But then with a the continental climate, it's going to be slightly hotter during the summertime. So on average, you're going to have uh, cooler winters. You're going to have problems with a lot of spring frost and a lot of the vine shutting down as it comes to the end of the year. But you're going to get... Can I just point, point yeah. one thing in here? I found it very interesting when I discovered that... And, and, and we have got a very similar climate in terms of heat summation to Burgundy, but... And, and if I said to you, what latitude do you think Marlborough would be in the equivalent in the Northern Hemisphere, where would you think we would be? Instinctively, you'd think probably somewhere in a latitude, somewhere around Burgundy, perhaps a little bit further north, perhaps a little bit further south, where in fact, Marlborough's at 41.5 degrees south. The equivalent latitude in France does not exist. We're actually the same latitude as um, through the middle of Italy and Spain. So the... But the reason we have the climate we do is because it's absolutely maritime. There is no continentality factor at all. So we don't, as, as Ronan says, we don't get the, the hot, the high, the highs or the lows. We get this very moderate, um, very even temperature that doesn't. It never. It very rarely gets above 30 degrees maximum. Um, so we have a very even. Um, Less diurnal range, but, uh, but at the end of the day, the heat summation is, is similar to Burgundy. So it's a, very different, it's a very different type of climate. And yeah, and I think you can look on here, you can see kind of uh, really where it reaches about 10 degrees, which is where your vine starts doing interesting things. You can kind of see the period of time between 10 degrees. If you're in something like a maritime climate, it's never going to get as cold in winter, uh, but it's never going to get as hot in summer. But what that does give you is between this point and this point is it gives you a longer but a cooler growing season. Mm. It's kind of similar to if you compared somewhere like Champagne to Bordeaux. Bordeaux will have the same. Bordeaux will have that maritime climate, so a longer but a cooler growing season. If you're more continental, it's going to be a shorter growing season, but it's going to be hotter. Um, so, yeah, Marlborough will give you that, that long, cool growing season. You're going to get that low cloud cover. I think there is a Maori word that describes the area of Marlborough, and it basically means uh, an area with a hole in the cloud, basically because of those mountains giving that rain shadow effect. It means that Marlborough is kind of like low cloud cover. You're going to get medium to low amounts of rainfall, so around 6.43, probably less of it in the growing season. Would that be about right? Sorry, what was that? Uh, you get what, what sort of rainfall in the growing season? It's, it's, it's quite oh, it, it varies so much. Yeah. If you're looking at 643, does anyone know what 643 millimetres? Anyone know what the rainfall is in London? It's about 650. So it's probably about the same. 
but in London it just drizzles all the time rather than sort of heavy periods of rainfall. Um, really, the canopy management needs to be suited to the climate. I guess maybe in the early days, the New Zealanders were looking towards Australia and asking, how do you grow grapes and using an Australian model? It was really um, Richard Smart that came in and probably gave um, indications of how canopy management should be managed. Does that kind of be about right? Have you got any comments on that? Yeah, we had Richard Smart give us his opinion on things in the early days. Okay. Bay, yeah. Okay. Um, but what it does do with that sort of low cloud cover, high UV rays, generally cool cl climate, uh, generally quite cold at night, so the diurnal temperature can come right down during the nighttime. So it creates these methoxypyrazines. And if you know any kind of Sauvignon uh, style of grape, has um, pyrazines, which give you those sort of green asparagus, bell pepper kind of characteristics. Well, these are kind of like um, supercharged pyrazines, methoxypyrazines. And they're a lot of the things that give you that very, very, can give you that very, very pungent Marlborough kind of style in the Sauvignon Blancs. Um, but back in, the, back in the early days, so apparently, um, at Cloudy Bay, you were doing a lot of that staged picking. Is that right? That's right. Stage picking. So you were picking slightly underripe to begin with, and then riper, and then slightly overripe at the end. And did you have semi-on in there in the early days? Yeah, yes, but it wasn't very successful. Okay, okay. So first vintage Cloudy Bay was 85. There was a bit of semi-on in there. 85 wasn't a good vintage, though, was it? Um... It was a reasonably good vintage. I can't remember. Okay. I've tried 86 and 87, ago. 88, but they said 85 is not a good vintage, so it hasn't lasted. So, anyway. The 85, um, as I say, the 85 spent um, 18 hours in a truck on the way to Gisborne, so I had a fair bit of skin contact. Okay. <laughs> right, okay. Okay. Um, but, yeah, so if you're looking in Marlborough um, for the whole region, so 24,000 hectares planted... And 19, no, nearly 20,000 hectares of that is all Sauvignon Blanc. So it's really the kind of the workhorse. So if you think Marlborough's 77% of New Zealand, and within Marlborough, 80% is, uh, is Sauvignon Blanc. So New Zealand Sauvignon, Marlborough Sauvignon Blanc especially is the real kind of the workhorse, the real sort of bread and butter of the New Zealand wine industry. And then looking on top of that, things like Pinot Noir, 2,600 hectares of Pinot Noir. Uh, Chardonnay, just over 1,000 hectares. That's probably about exactly the same as Hawke's Bay. Um, so, so not that much, really. And then the other aromatic varieties, you'd get things like Pinot Gris, Riesling, Gewürztraminer, and Viognier in there as well. Um, so this is the place. So Kiputa Tiwarau. My Maori's not that great. But that's kind of meaning the place with the hole in the cloud. So that's those sort of areas. And that area at the top, the Wairau River, the southern valleys down here, and then the Awa Tree just around there, down around the sort of town of Seddon. So it's kind of, it can be generalizing a little bit, but if you're looking up in the sort of Wairau Plain River, so again, like we say, lots of those alluvial gravels, lots of that small sort of clay uh, um, uh, um, particles and things like that. Uh, up in this area, you can tend to find a lot of the wines can be more on that slightly uh, asparagusy, slightly tinny, slightly greeny vegetable kind of character. Maybe more of that capsicum, bell pepper, um, that sort of greenish kind of characteristics to it. About 45% of the plantings up there. 
And then kind of in the southern valleys, so coming out all of those valleys down here, your Waihopai, Amaka, etc., you're getting maybe a, a slightly more tropical characteristic to the wine, so maybe more of that passion fruit kind of characteristic. This is a slight generalization because there's been different soil types within all those sort of areas, but generally that more tropical character. Maybe if you're looking down at the head of the sort of Wairau River, down here where it gets very silty and very clay-like, you can get a lot more of those sort of thiols that give you more of that grapefruit, more of that kind of sweaty Sauvignon characteristic. And then over the mountains here, over the Wither Hills, you're kind of over into the Hour Tree over here. 30% um, of all the plantings here, relatively new area for, 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 for Marlborough, if you compared to the other two. Um, and generally, probably the characteristics there being a bit more sort of green, stalky, a bit more kind of tomato stalk, tomato skin kind of characteristics. When I first went to Marlborough, there were no grapes in the Awateri. Now the Awateri is the second, if, if, it were a, if it were a separate wine region, it would be the second biggest wine region in New Zealand. The Awateri is bigger than Hawke's Bay which is the second biggest region. So yeah. it's, a, it's, a, it's very significant these days. Yeah, well, it'll be, it'll be about 7,000 hectares then, won't it? If it's not sure. Yeah. Okay. Um, but if you kind of think as a winemaker from that whole region, if you're wanting to put complexity into things like your Sauvignon Blancs, you can be taking fruit from the Wairau, fruit from the Southern Valleys, and fruit from the Hour Tree, all giving you slightly different flavor profiles and kind of blending that to add kind of layers into the, uh, into the, into the sort of the overall finish. And um, yeah, some of the producers over there are doing this stage picking. So it's picking slightly some of the grapes, maybe 10% slightly underripe to give you more of those green characteristics. Then maybe 80% when they're ripe, and then maybe 10% at the end, slightly overripe, getting more tropical and slightly uh, uh, richer and slightly dehydrated. So you can kind of put... Sauvignon Blanc, I don't think, is a really... Excuse me saying, I, I'm sure you would agree with me. Sauvignon Blanc is probably not the most complex wine to make. But depending where you're taking your wines from and what the winemaker is doing for it, you can add lots of flavour and lots of difference to it. Hopefully we're going to see that in Kevin's Greywacky, which is quite an unusual style of Sauvignon. Um, okay, so on to the first wine. Anything else you want to add about Marlborough in general? If you've got questions for Kevin, you've got him now, um, so please ask. So can I just ask one quick thing? It's a throwaway thing. You said that the Semillon didn't perform well. I'm not sure whether it was the clone that we were using back then. I suspect it may have been, but um, we in the, in the 19... 90s we had some very cool vintages and we struggled to get Sauvignon Blanc sufficiently ripe in some years and Semillon tended to ripen even later and when in the particular clone that we were growing if we didn't get it ripe it was really ugly it was like broad beans and cabbage and it was in more often than not the wine went down the road in a big truck to another winery um, and then eventually we pulled it out and gave up and just concentrated on Sauvignon Blanc and I suspect if you were growing, had a better clone of Semillon and you were growing it in a better place and treating it differently, it would probably have a better result, but I've never gone back there. And so how much Semillon was in there, like 5%, 10%? Something like that. Well, it varied from 0 to 5 or 10. OK, so if you want to have a look at the first wine, so, um, uh, so Riesling from Zephyr. So Zephy is based out in Dillon's Point. So whereabouts is Dillon's Point? Uh, Dillon's Point is in what we call the Lower Wairau. So 
So it's in the Wairau Plains, but it's towards the, uh, the, towards the ocean. And it's quite heavy, quite, it's quite sort of heavy, loamy, rich, rich soil. Okay. And as Ronan said before, in terms of Sauvignon Blanc, that's a subregion that gives you a lot more of that sort of really uh, sweaty, uh, thyle type of character. So I think Riesling, again, is becoming more and more popular in New Zealand. There's not, there's not a huge amount planted. What do, you think, what do you think Riesling would be planted at? Maybe less than 1,000 hectares, I would say? I don't know. It's very, very small, and, and um, it's not insignificant, but it's, it's a very small... It's a... I think one of, the biggest, one, of the, one of the best producers up in Marlborough as well for Riesling would be um, Tafari Ra. We do have one of their wines to taste later on, but they're from old vines, some sort of 30-year-old aged wines. I think that they're doing some, um, some great, great work there. Uh, so this wine is 24-year-old um, vines, so it's got some vine age. It's 9.5% tartary, or 9.5 grams tartaric acid, so it's quite high in acidity, as you expect Riesling to be, with 8 grams residual sugar, which I think you can see a touch of residual sugar on the palate, but it's nicely balanced, um, as good Riesling should be. It's not too, not too high on the acidity scale. scale. And they're making about... 3,000 bottles of this a year. But generally, I think with a lot of those aromatic styles in New Zealand, um, there can be some confusion, like with a lot of Riesling, about how much is sweet and how much is non-sweet. How well do you think the New Zealanders are kind of embracing that slightly off-dry style? Do people understand it? Uh, there's a whole mixture is with, with Pinot Gris and with Riesling in New Zealand. There's a whole mixture of different balances that different people use, and it's a little bit confusing for the consumer. And I think they're sort of varieties that are sort of victims of their own diver of their own um, diversity, and that the consumer does get a bit confused. But it, in New Zealand, the use of residual sugar in Riesling is quite common, and it varies a reasonable amount. There are some people producing dry Riesling, but generally they are a lot of them are have a balance of uh, sugar and acid. That's distinct from the Australians, which if they don't get down to two grams per litre, they're sort of slitting their wrists and, and depressed. Um, they like it really dry. But in New Zealand, it's very common. At Grey Wacky, we make a Riesling that's 20 grams residual sugar, but it has a very low pH. Yeah. pH is below three, so the, um, it, doesn't, it doesn't taste anything like 20. Yeah. And your Riesling's about the same TA, sort of nine and a half grams? Uh, not nine, no, that's surprisingly... Um, it high, doesn't taste it? like nine. Nine's yeah. a lot of acid. Is that what they said? Yeah, that's what it says on the technique. Yeah. Um, but I guess you're all um, wine people, so I'm sure that you all love Riesling. Does anyone here hate Riesling? No, everyone who likes wine likes Riesling. Um, but, I mean, for me, a very well-balanced Riesling, and I think uh, it's kind of wine that goes well with the, with the food down there. You probably have quite a lot of uh, Malaysian, Thai uh, um, influences down there. And this kind of style of wine, I think, with that little bit of residual sugar goes very well with these styles. Of... Uh, I didn't, because um, I'm not sure. But I can look on the bottle. Uh, 12%. Riesling and Marlborough makes really good wine. And it and it's, and it's um, has great longevity. But it's... it's... It's like all these other varieties, they live in this big, big Sauvignon Blanc shadow, and it's, um, it's hard to entice people to buy the stuff, which is frustrating. One, one day, that's why we're here, one day the world's going to discover these other wines of Marlborough. 
So 280 hectares of um, Riesling planted in Marlborough. Oh, I'm surprised. Okay, then if we move on to wine number... Any comments about that Riesling? Yeah? I mean, it's pretty good. It's pretty well balanced. It's kind of what you'd expect. It's a lot in that sort of lime, lime characteristic. A lot of these wines remind me a bit like if you ever drink things like mojitos... They always remind me kind of a mojito. It's kind of like lots and lots of fresh lime and sort of a minty kind of characteristic to them. So kind of fresh, really sort of that acidity gives you a really sort of uh, juicy mouthfeel to it. And then that <coughs> residual sugar kind of rounds it all off, gives it a great length. So moving on to the second wine, which um, uh, I would say probably is one of, I think it's one of my, even though it, not because he's here, but it's probably one of my favourite Sauvignon Blancs coming out of Marlborough at the moment. I've tried this wine several times. I've tried it several times blind, and I always thought, wow. But, um, yeah, tell us about this wine. So this is our, our own quite individual interpretation of Marlborough Sauvignon Blanc. It's um, from a, a variety of vineyard sites, some from the Wairau Plain, some from Rapara. So, uh, quite a bit of it's from the Southern Valleys, from the Brancot Valley and the Amaka Valley. Um, this particular vintage doesn't have anything from the Awateri, but we are now also sourcing a bit of fruit from the very upper Awateri, so not down by the sea, a very stony terrace in the upper Awateri, which is becoming part of future vintages of the Grey Wacky uh, Wild Sauvignon. So we're, we're aiming, for both of our Sauvignon Blancs, we're aiming for, for, quite, um, for, quite that, for the riper end of the spectrum, so we keep our tonnages down, to around a maximum of 11 tonnes per hectare. We aim for about 10 to make sure we do get ripeness and concentration. Um, we, we, we actually we pick um, a good percentage of the Grey Wacky Wild Sauvignon by machine. Um, we, I pick everything by hand except Sauvignon Blanc. Sauvignon Blanc's got a very thin skin, so we can, um, it, doesn't, it doesn't pick up phenolic, so we can effectively pick it by machine during the middle of the night when it's nice and cool. And... Um, so there's no, um, no effective skin contact, so it's picked into small bins, tipped into a press from a small bin. Um, we, don't, we, don't, we, don't, we aim for about 700 litres per tonne, which is quite low extraction. And then we settle, we settle the juice for a couple of days, and then, and then rather, than, rather than rack into a stainless steel tank and inoculate it and produce a, a more classic Marlborough style, we rack into barrel. And, um, and, and basically do nothing. We just stack the barrels in the cellar and carry on with harvest. So we don't add any yeast. We don't, um, we don't mon- we, we, well, we check, we check ultimately that the barrels have started fermenting, but they don't normally start fermenting for a couple of weeks. So we call it wild Sauvignon, it's wild yeast. So it's 100% wild yeast and not um, natural yeast, feral yeast, indigenous yeast, whatever you want to call it. We don't add any, we don't add any um, micro organisms to to the juice any yeast or any bacteria so it's, it's 100% wild so it takes a couple of weeks to start fermenting during which time there's a microbiological zoo um, sort of growing in the juice so it's, cerev- it's a sort of non-cerevisii type um, yeast and then once the fermentation starts you get this sort of um, alcohol builds up and you get this takeover of um, cerevisiae type of yeasts and then the cerevisiae finishes the fermentation. So it's not, a, it's not a specific type of wild yeast, it's just a whole zoo. And so you're quite low on sulphur if that's the case? Uh, we don't add a lot of sulphur in the juice stage. Right. 
and then um, so the fermentation is slow to start. It goes quite quickly because we don't control it. We don't have any refrigeration. We don't attempt to control the fermentation. It just gets as hot as it gets in the barrel, which is usually only to lo the low 20s. It ferments quite quickly, and then it starts to slow down because the wild yeasts are not so alcohol tolerant. And then by this time, the cellars are starting to cool down because winter's coming on. The fermentations go dormant during the winter, and then they start again in the spring. And then, and then this wine, we also look for... Um, for about two-thirds male lactic. <coughs> so wild yeast, uncontrolled ferment, in barrel, 100% in barrel. It's quite a lot of male lactic for Sauvignon, then. Two-thirds, yeah. yeah. Uh, there's not a lot of Marlborough Sauvignons that have had any male lactic. Yeah. But the male lactic sort of softens the acidity and gives the wine a bit more breadth. Yeah. I mean, there's a lot of complexity in there, and that oak, it's kind of like... I mean, comparing it to sort of very good Bordeaux, I think it's as close you can get. If you had that blind, I think you'd be sort of more Bordeaux than you would be Marlborough. Well, a lot of people say to me it's like a Sancerre, but it's not. It's, more like, it's exactly what you're saying. It's more like a white Bordeaux style. If you, if you wanted to have an analogy for something in, in the old world, it's more like a white Bordeaux, but without a lot of oak. It spends uh, 11 months in barrel, but only about 7% of the barrels are new, and they're light toast, so it's a fairly subtle, or I'd like to think it's a fairly subtle oak infl yeah. influence. No, it's very subtle, yeah. Um, you get that kind of, uh, that sort of wild lily kind of smoked... Uh, flinty gun smoke kind of character, I think, from from the oak, rather than you don't get vanilla with Sauvignon Blanc in oak. And, and we have a, a, a small percentage of the juice is, is quite cloudy, um, so we like a little bit of the juice to be very cloudy, so that we get a little bit of that struck match, but not too much. Yep. Um, any comments about that wine? To the stunned into silence. Um, I mean, yeah, for me, I just think it's an amount. I mean, I love the style of white Bordeaux. I love the style. I like Sauvignon Blanc. Some people can really dislike Sauvignon Blanc. But um, and I think that's just a, a great wine. I think it's a stunning wine. Were you, were, you, were you responsible for Ticoco when you were at Cloudy Bay? Was that one of the first barrel-aged Sauvignons? Uh, yes, definitely. Um, Ticoco, in fact, the very first wine that was fermented at Cloudy Bay was, well... The very first experiment was that we did with wild yeast was actually a Chardonnay, and that was um, as a response to employing James Healy. James Healy, um, I, I headhunted him from Corbin's in um, 1990, 1990, and he encouraged me. I thought he was being a dickhead, but anyway, um, he, he encouraged me to use wild yeast on, on the Chardonnay, so I reluctantly eventually agreed to a small trial. Um, but we, David Honan and I were so so impressed with the result that the following year, 92, she was 91 he joined us, in 92 we did the first experiment with wild yeast on um, Sauvignon Blanc. And that first wine, actually I volunteered fruit from my vineyard, and the vineyard was called Greywacky Vineyard. And um, we didn't, at that point... The, the, and the Cloudy Bay guys probably won't tell you this either. Um, at that point, we didn't have the name Tococo, and we had so we had this barrel fermented Sauvignon Blanc sitting there, and, and we wanted to, we wanted to market it, so we um, we didn't want to call it Fumé Blanc or Cloudy Bay Reserve, so we called it Cloudy Bay Sauvignon. We took the word Blanc off Sauvignon, 1992, and then in fine print, Grey Wacky Vineyard. So that was the that was the very first use of the word Grey Wacky. So. Okay. So there was a 92 with a single vineyard, and then a 94, and then in 96 we released the first Tococo, and that, that was the how... So Tococo was 100% wild, 100% male lactic. 
But like Ernie Hunter's first Sauvignon, he was calling that Fumé Blanc, wasn't he? You never attempted to do that? We, we toyed with the idea of calling it Fumé Blanc and then ended up calling it Grey Wacky Vineyard. Okay. And then, um, and that's what encouraged me to, to register the name Grey Wacky in 93 so that no one would pinch my name because okay. it was from my own vineyard. Right, well, I mean, great job. Then, then it became uh, Tikoko. Um, and do you find there's a lot of other growers in Marlborough that are kind of going down those slightly more sort of white burgundy or even uh, even Burgundian styles of barrel ferment, lees aging? Yep, definitely. There's more and more and more and more experimentation and more diversity of style happening in Marlborough all the time. But once you start int- introducing all those different types of fermentation techniques, you get um, more diversity. And, and I mean, Dog Point Section 94 is a classic example. I mean, we make grey wacky at, at sort of at Dog Point. Well, certainly the wild Sauvignon is still 100% produced at Dog Point. So they're both wild, both Section 94 and, and grey wacky wild are both 100% wild. They're both from similar types of vineyards. Our, our wine is from a, a raft of different vineyard sites, whereas the Dog Point is from a single vineyard. And um, they're both wild, but they're both absolutely different styles of wine and because our wine is fermented largely with clear juice and we use a bit of malolactic um, they use um, a lot of solids in the fermentation and they don't use any malolactic so, so whilst the wines are both wild fermented Sauvignon Blancs they're absolutely um, different styles and, and, and lots of people are saying they're using wild yeast but there's all, all sorts of different ways of using wild yeast and, and how you control the ferment and what you do afterwards, and there's so many options to um, control well, that, that um, in the be, winemaking. You get more of diversity. It must be tricky if you do good. individual barrels and wild ferment. You must get ferments being stuck, different rates, different flavors, all sorts of different... From barrel to barrel, it can be different. Uh, it's, they're surprisingly consistent within each batch, actually. Okay. We like to have lots of different batches to sort of even out the... Um, some batches go quite wild and some batches don't go very wild at all, so it's good to have multiple batches to blend together. But between barrels, they're actually very consistent. Yeah. Okay. But yeah, for those that um, probably don't like the wines too sweaty, too herbaceous, too asparagusy, I think that this is kind of like very elegant, you know, very, uh, very grown up style of Sauvignon Blanc. Um, do people agree, disagree? Does anyone hate it? Does anyone dare tell Kevin that they hate it? No, good I've been told before it was a waste of good Sauvignon Blanc juice. <laughs> Some guy from Sydney sent me an email and said, how dare you use wood in Marlborough Sauvignon Blanc? And I've spent all this money, and he took the trouble to email us, and it was like, Kimberly was reading it out to me, and I was like, what the fuck? <laughs> 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 Excuse me. Beg your pardon? Yeah, that's true. Doesn't know much about Sauvignon Okay, so moving on to the wine number three. So we've got the state land, uh, the state of surrender, Viognier. So 2015, 2015, 2016, both good vintages. 2014, not so great a vintage. Uh, 14, 14 was okay. Okay. What was the best vintage? 2010 over the last few years? Uh, 10 was pretty good. 10 was very good, actually. 10 was good. 11 was good. 12 was very cold. 13 was excellent. 14 was, I can't remember 14. The last two have been very challenging. 17, yeah, was, was tricky. 18 wasn't, was pretty tricky too. Okay. 
So this is the state land uh, Viognier. Uh, I mean, yeah, very, very small amounts of Viognier planted there. Um, state land, this particular area is in uh, Rapara, so very good kind of area near, close to Blenheim. Uh, they have a 20-hectare vineyard, and within that vineyard, the kind of the warmest area of the vineyard, they have four rows of Viognier, and this is it. So, um, so yeah, warmest part of the area, only four rows, so they produce a tiny, tiny amount of this. Um, it's generally whole bunch pressed. It's uh, fermented over a long time, slow-cooled ferment, and it spends a little bit of time on minimum amounts of lees. So, I don't know about you, but I think if I had that wine blind, I think I'd be pretty confident that that's the onion. Sort of peachy, rounded, creamy, all of that apricot, yogurt kind of character. Uh, generally soft acidity, generally warm alcohol. It's kind of pretty much fitting a sort of a chondria kind of uh, model in that respect. I think it's delicious. Do you like that wine? I think that's fantastic. First mm. time I've tried that, actually. Yeah, Very yeah. good. It's good. But yeah, unmistakably Viognier. Um, So do you think that that would be a variety that may, judging on, on the performance of that wine, do you think that might be a wine that would be? Is the problem in Marlborough, or not the problem, but the, the fact is that Marlborough Sauvignon Blanc is so popular that these kind of different varieties, people are, um, don't want to plant different varieties because of economic reasons? Is it the accountants that are driving this push for Sauvignon? Um. We're sort of a victim of our own success in terms of Sauvignon Blanc. It's so successful that it, it sort of everything else is in the shadow. And um, I think the smaller companies are starting to experiment with other varieties, which is great. But is there a market for it? I mean, that's what I think the caution is in the, in the marketplace. Yeah. I mean, Chardonnay is another example. Because I want to remind you... Well, Chardonnay is not exactly a... Uh, a left-field variety by any means. No. In the US last year, we sold 10,000 cases of Grey Wacky Sauvignon Blanc and 80 cases of Chardonnay, despite getting sort of 93 points. And right. It's just insane. Because I must admit, when I, ca I came to visit Cloudy Bay, I think first time, would have probably been about 2002, when you were a winemaker there, and you kind of showed me uh, half a dozen Sauvignon Blancs, which you, I did get the impression that you were kind of done with Sauvignon Blanc. It wasn't the most, didn't light your fire too much. But then we went on to things like your late harvest wines, your Gewürztraminer, and I think you had a, you had a Cabernet Sauvignon. Uh, we gave up on that in around, um, what, what, when did you say it was? About 2002. Yeah. Now we'd given up on it by that stage, but we might have been showing you an older vintage. And I think that's one of the interesting things in Marlborough at the moment is that there's, you know, a lot of the winemakers are given huge amounts of Sauvignon Blanc that, they have, that they're making, um, but they're all kind of trying different things and experimenting with it because, like I say, Sauvignon Blanc is pretty easy to make if you're making the stainless steel kind of style. It's pretty much putting it in tank, letting it settle, letting it ferment, and then you're kind of done, really. Um, but there's lots of people trying to do different things and experimenting and stuff, and maybe out of boredom. But, um, yeah, so it's interesting to see these other varieties in that region. I don't think it's out of boredom. I think it's... Um because winemakers are winemakers and they like to make good wine. And we've got um, this amazing climate to, that allows us to... I mean, we, we 
Cabernet is a real struggle in Marlborough. We just don't get the heat summation to get Cabernet right. Um, I mean, some people like Hans Herzog sort of push the boundaries and they, they go out there and they sort of manicure the vines and they've only got a few rows and they'll, they'll make a respectable wine from that grape variety, but it's very hard work and it's very hard to do it commercially. Yeah. But anything, and anything that doesn't need that sort of heat, um, when we get, as you said before, sunny climate, cool conditions, no low maximum temperature, so we get this incredible intensity of fruit character and beautiful intensity of varietal character. And it's just, and it's, it is a real frustration um, that, that the world doesn't really recognise anything that we do except Sauvignon Blanc and now, to some degree, Pinot Noir. Yeah, I mean, uh, who is it? Terravan, they do a bit of Cabernet Sauvignon, don't they? I think they've got some Cabernet. There's a block of Cabernet on the road out the front, yes. Yeah. Um, I don't know that Terravin still... That Terravin doesn't own that anymore, though. OK. No. I've had some it's bottles. changed hands. But then Herzog, I mean, Herzog do a lot of Italian varieties, so they do Arnis. Uh, they do... They do Montepulciano. Montepulciano. They do Nebbiolo. They do Barbera. They do... Uh, I think they've got some Tempranillo. And then Austrian varieties, they've got Zweigelt, and they've got um, Saint Laurent. So, yeah, Herzog are really kind of doing uh, a lot of different things up there. Uh, I don't think I have too much details on the analysis. In fact, I don't have any details. Apart from, yeah, it's four hectares, it's a whole bunch of process, slow cool ferment, and it's eight months on these. I don't have any technical, technical data on acidity and things like that. Yeah. But, I mean, I think it's a lovely wine, great wine. Okay, so moving on, we're already over time. Uh, so moving on to the next wine. So this is Chardonnay from Villa Maria. So this is um, their single vineyard, Taylor's Pass. And so this is up in the hour tray. So um, it's kind of done in a Burgundian style. It's hand-picked, whole bunch, pressed. It's wild. It's 75% wild ferment. Um, it's barrel fermented, and it spends about nine months on its lees. And it's kind of getting, you know, for people like myself or people that are taking exams or people that are doing blind tastings, uh, the whole Chardonnay thing is getting quite confusing nowadays because people are starting to make Chardonnay so much like good white Burgundy and in some cases probably better than a lot of white Burgundy. Um, I think people say, that, you know, don't particularly like flavours of oak, but if it's done like this and it's nicely balanced and it has the uh, minerality and it has the freshness underneath it, it's not cloying or it's not sweet, I think it's a, a joy to drink. So any comments on, from yourself on Chardonnay in Marlborough? <clears throat> oh, I think good, good. There's a lot of, there's a lot of ver variety of, in terms of quality of, of Chardonnay in Marlborough, and some of it's treated a little bit co commodity-like in terms of how it's picked and how it's grown, but the good stuff is really, really good. And now, now that, I mean, we're using 100% wild yeast and and good barrels, and, and um, the wines live for many, many years, and they've got some gr great concentration, and they, are, they represent good value. Come and have a look at the Grey Wacky, if you get a minute, today. And generally, the, the yields from Sauvignon can be relatively high, and you can still have good fruit, but what about the yields for Chardonnay? Well, Chardonnay is typically not... Well, it depends on the clone. There is a lot of clonal variation too, which also gives you quali quality variation. CO95. Beg your pardon? CO95 for this. Oh, clone 95. Yeah, 95 is good. We use uh, clone 95 in Mendoza. Mendoza 
The Australians call it Gingin, the uh, Californians apparently call it Wente. It's a clone that has a lot of Millerandage or hen and chicken, so some of the berries are very, very small. Um, but, and it has a lot of acidity. A lot of Marlborough winemakers have gone away from Mendoza because it has very, very high acidity. Like it's not uncommon to pick it at 24 bricks or a potential alcohol of 14 or more and still have 10 to 11 grams at the, at the press, which is a lot of acid. So you need to put it through malolactic um, to get the acid in balance. But, if, but generally, if you, get the, if you get the fruit ripe and you get it through a malolactic, it turns out a really nice balance. The, the thing that winemakers need to get their head around is how to get it through a big, because it's, it's quite a significant malolactic, is how to get it through the malolactic and not make the wine taste like malolactic. I, I personally hate wines that taste like malolactic, and um, we, over the years we've learned how to avoid that butterscotchy character. But if I told an Australian winemaker that we picked, you know, we've got 14, a 14.5% alcohol wine, that's had a complete malolactic, and we've added no no added acid, and we've still got the balance that we have. They just can't believe it. Just the, you know, the concept is just completely beyond them. That we get this incredible natural acidity that it, that gives us this really beautiful balance. Did I answer the question, or did I get dive? No, that's good. Uh, any comments? Good Chardonnay. Yeah. Okay. Right. We'll move on to the last two reds. So we've got the uh, Giesen estate, uh, the brothers Pinot Noir. This is, I think this is their top Pinot Noir. So um, this is kind of Southern Valley's fruit. Um, I, probably, I was never a massive fan of Pinot Noir from Marlborough, but I think in the last 15 years or so, there's been a lot of moving vines into places like the Southern Valleys, especially on the hillsides in the Southern Valleys. And I think the quality of Pinot in, in Marlborough has definitely increased a lot over the last 10, 15 years. I think, yeah, moving on to those hillsides, part of, this, part of the fruit that comes in this wine comes from the Clavin Vineyard, which is kind of a very famous vineyard um, from, have a look, quite a lot of Clavin. Um, so, yeah, Clavin fruit goes into this. Um, so really kind of, uh, yeah, good vintage. Uh, it has some oak aging to it, which I think you've got to be careful with oak aging down there. Do they, do, would you know if they, they probably don't do whole bunch ferment? I don't know what they've done in this wine. Any stems in it at all? I don't know. I mean, Marlborough Pinot Noir, when we first started playing with it, we had the wrong clones and it was growing in the wrong place. Most of the Pinot Noir planted in the early days in Marlborough was uh, Back to Bell, Merriafeld, and t the best clone we had in the early days was 10 by 5. It's now the lowest, the least um, desirable clone that we have. Is 10 by 5, that's, um, it's that's a sw Swiss? It's a Swiss clone. Yeah. I mean, it can be good, and I think a lot of Felton Road's 10 by 5, but An able we, we had to get the better clones. We had to get the Dijon clones, the, the 777, the 667115, and some also the French clone, Clone 5. When we got those clones in more volume, and once we discovered the clay soils of the Southern Valleys, started planting on the hills, the Southern Valleys irrigation scheme was installed, what, 15 years ago, something like that? And um, that opened up a lot of the hillsides in the southern valleys that were, and pr prior to that, they were incapable of um, having enough water to establish with irrigation. Um, so now that we've got the right clones in the right places, and now that we're getting some vine age, it's not a lot of vine age, but it's sort of we're getting some vines that are sort of 15, 
or so years old. Claven is one of the very first, well, Claven was the first hillside vineyard planted in Marlborough, and it's, um, it's a, it's a well-known vineyard. Marlborough Pinot Noir is now really coming of age, and the good, the good, it's a bit like Chardonnay. There's a lot of stuff that's commodity, that's, that's grown like a commodity, and it's average quality. I mean, it's good value, and it's not, it's not, you know, it's not bad wine, but it's just ordinary. And but the good stuff is really, really good. Yeah. Um, yeah, and I guess this, this is just to show that you know the, the quality that Pinot can get to now in Marlborough. In Marlborough, we tend to make a more uh, fragrant, aromatic style of Pinot Noir, sort of more, more in line with what you would expect from Martin Borough and not, um, quite so, um, not quite so big as the Central Otago style. Central Otago has a con- is, is New Zealand's only continental climate, so, so that you can expect higher maximum temperatures in Central Otago, lower minimums. It's, it's probably more in line with the Burgundian diurnal range. Um, Quite often when you're watching the weather at the end of the day, the hottest temperature recorded in the country can be in central Otago, which is quite, quite um, surprising given its southerly latitude. Um, but the central Otago style is quite different, but, and, and Marlborough is more sort of in line with Nelson and, and, um, and um, Wairapa. Okay, and then on to the last wine. So this is the Tifari Ra. Uh, which is Maori for sense of place, I think, something like that. House in the sun, I think. Oh, is it house in the sun? Okay. I think. I've never heard that. Okay. <coughs> okay, but the, um, yeah, so like we say earlier, they inherit, they bought this block of uh, great Riesling. I think the, the uh, Jason Flower Day is from uh, Marlborough and Anna is Australian. Correct. They bought this great, great plot of vines, old vine Riesling, um, and a tiny bit of Syrah. And if you think Syrah in New Zealand, is, is about 430 hectares for the whole country. So very, 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 very small. You think that's going to be kind of about half the size of Pomerol is the entire planting of Syrah in New Zealand. So very, very small. And I think the entire plantings of Syrah in Marlborough is about 11 hectares. And I'm not sure, not, not sure how much these guys really? have, but it's not very much. Has anyone seen Syrah from Marlborough before? I don't think I've ever seen it. From also make a Syrah and... Um I think I think Geeson have a little bit of Syrah. I think. Um, so the bulk. I'm, of... I'm toying with the idea of planting a bit behind my house, actually. Oh yeah. There's no doubt at all that the climate is changing in Marlborough. It's definitely warmer than it ever was. Last year was the warmest vintage on record. Um, but I mean, for me, I think Syrah is definitely the, the you know a really exciting red variety coming out of Marlborough. Yeah. Uh, out of out of New Zealand. Out of New general. Zealand. Uh, you know, those Hawke's Bay, Hawke's Bay is where it's, I mean, 330 hectares are from Hawke's Bay, so you know, 75% of all the Syrah is from Hawke's Bay, and you have those fantastic wines like um, uh, Craggy Ranges, La Sol, and um, uh, Trinity Hills Homage, which are f- kind of fantastic Syrahs, um, could compete definitely with any Syrah from around the world. Um, so I think it's a really interesting variety. It's, it's really interesting to see it down in Marlborough now. We had it growing at Cloudy Bay in the very early days. Okay. But we never made a wine from it. Well, we did, but we never bottled it. We sold it. It grew like Triffids. I think we had the wrong clone, and we had no idea what we were doing in terms of um, viticulture. Right. But I think I'm, I strongly believe now that if you've got the right clone of Shiraz, Shiraz, Shiraz and, and treat it like Pinot Noir, pull it on a hillside in the southern valleys, 
It's got some serious potential. Yeah. I think this one has a lot of that, that roan characteristic, has a lot of that crushed black pepper characteristic. Uh, yeah, do you know that, or are you guessing? Pro- uh, probably is. I mean, they're all biodynamic. You know, they're very kind of like yeah, minimum sulfur, all that sort of their winemaking philosophy. So yeah, it probably is. Um, but you get that cracked black pepper, that rotundun characteristic, but then a kind of a sweet, uh, ripe blackberry kind of characteristic to it. I think. I, I mean, I, I always think of New Zealand Sauvignons, uh, New Zealand Syrahs being, you know, a good mix between Northern Rhone and kind of Aus- the cooler climate. Australian varieties, sort of Heathcote, Hunter Valley kind of Syrah mixed with a bit of black pepper from the Rhone. So a lot of that black pepper and then that meaty, um, spicy, um, kind of smoked sausage, spicy paprika kind of characteristics to it. And then, but a nice acidity, good smooth tannins and good length to it. So, I mean, yeah, first time I tried a Syrah from Marlborough, it's very nice. Any comments about that? Good, good length to it. Yeah. Okay, so um, sorry we're a little bit over time, but does anyone have any questions? Anyone questions for Kevin while he's here? He will be here for the rest of the day, so you can kind of grab him as you walk around. It is. A, there are a raft of different styles in New Zealand, um, varying from... Um, sort of tutti-frutti with 30 grams per litre of residual sugar um, but the good stuff's and we, we, get, we get some really good varietal character sort of quince and, and poached pear and I mean I, I love good Pinot Gris there's a, there's a real sort of anti-Pinot Gris thing in the, in the industry in New Zealand but the biggest market for our Pinot, we export 96% of our production across the board, but the biggest market for our Pinot Gris and Chardonnay, for that matter, is New Zealand. There's a real, we are really, we're selling like five or 600 cases of Pinot Gris in, in, in New Zealand, which is really cool. And, and it's Pinot Gris. We call it Pinot Gris. Some, uh, most people call it Pinot Gris. We're, we're aiming for the very oily, um, sort of very textural, very ripe, a bit of wild, quite a lot of wild yeast fermentation in old barrels and that sort of thing. Alsace style. Some some of it's um, treated more like a sort of the Italian end of the spectrum, but it, there, it, it is a wide range of styles and it is confusing for the consumer. But the New Zealand consumer is definitely embracing Pinot Gris. I'm not so sure about in in England. I think we always have because of Alsace. Um, it's probably not the biggest selling varietal, but no. people understand it because that's what we see a lot, Alsace, and it has a, always has a bit of residual sugar. But even in, in Alsace there, you know, there's a few producers like Dice and Josmeyer who are pushing to put the sugar scale on the back just to make it more understandable. But in New Zealand, I'm known Nigel Greening down at Felton Road. He does a Riesling. He does a dry Riesling and a sweeter Riesling. And his sweeter Riesling, his off-dry Riesling is called Riesling. And his dry Riesling is called dry Riesling. So he makes it pretty simple. So um, I guess that you have to have a universal system that everyone adopts um, along those scales. And, and, you know, his idea is, is as simple as anything. So. Well, we, we started by buying Pinot um, Gris from Maria. Okay. Okay. Really? Yeah. Did it make a difference to you? I would imagine t- 
probably to all of us here who are kind of a bit more wine savvy and probably appreciate good wine, the name Pinot Grigio would make you run a mile. I think well, the thing with Pinot Grigio too is there is an, there's an immediate expectation of lower price point. <laughs> so I wouldn't go there. Okay, any, uh, any more questions? Well, thank you very much for your attention. Thank you very much, Kevin. Thank you. Thank, thank you, you very much. much for the Sauvignon. It's a good job. All good. Okay. And enjoy the rest of the day. Enjoy the tastings. Thank you. Thank you so much to Ronan, to Kevin, and to New Zealand Wine for putting on a fantastic masterclass. I think there are some great learnings in this masterclass and that it illustrates the different interesting styles of wine coming out of Marlborough, not just Sauvignon Blanc. You'll find details of the price of the wines and the UK importer below in the description. And below that, the website and main social media handles for Ronan, Kevin and New Zealand Wine. And of course, I'd love to have you following along with me. I'm at Interpreting Wine on Instagram and Facebook, at Wine Podcast on Twitter, and email hello at interpretingwine.com. The next episode, 235, concludes my coverage of the New Zealand event. But we go out with a bang, and this will feature a masterclass with Rebecca Gibb, MW, talking about Hawke's Bay. See you next time.